Good evening. Well, thanks for coming out. If you, does anybody not have notes? If you need a set of notes, Sam has got some to hand out to you if you need notes. Okay, a couple things on the notes. Number one, this is probably two weeks or more worth, so don't lose them. Please keep them. Don't lose them. Thank you very much. With that introduction of huge welcome, let me pray and then um, let's think about saint sinners in the battle for salvation in the early church. Lord, you have given us a rich heritage of brothers and sisters from around the world and down through the ages upon whose shoulders we stand because they protected the gospel. So we pray, Lord, for your grace to be upon us in this time to think about this mysterious first centuries of the birth of your church. So bless our time together, both in thinking about you and your gospel and marvel at your providence uh, protecting your word against um, crazy assaults. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I'm gonna begin with a question. What might be some reasons that studying church history especially the early church history, what are some reasons that might be valuable or invaluable, bad, waste of time? I'll, I'll take either. Raise your hand and then a, a mic will come to you. Remember, we're mic'd up because we're recording. Any value in church history, Sam? Well, I mean, proximity, right? So, you know, you have the apostles and you have their direct, um, their direct disciples who wrote these things. And so studying what they taught at the time they taught it, um, I, I think helps us to keep things in perspective and not allow modern sentiment and modern interpretation of, based on our culture, to influence how we, we see scripture. Really good. What, what, I'm gonna put you on the spot. I'm gonna pause for a little bit so you can sweat. Uh, the, the idea of, so you said proximity, meaning Here's guys who maybe even knew the disciples or maybe even discipled by a disciple. Uh, why would it matter that we care what they think about because they're close to the apostles even though we're 2,000 years away? I was actually reading up a little bit on Islam. It was 600 years later that Muhammad's revelation happened, you know, and he claims a lot of the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the apostles were wrong. Um, and it's like, okay, 600 years later, that's twice the age of the United States, separated from Christ that Muhammad was. And so with the proximity, you not only have eyewitnesses in some cases of Christ and, and disciples of the apostles, but you also have the testimony of men who gave their lives for something that they believed in. And if it was fake, then why would they do that? Why would they die for it? And so having it that close... Um, I think is an encouragement, honestly. <laughs> That's great, Sam. It's really good. Thank you. What else? Any, any other comments or speculations on why or why not church history might be something valuable to think about, to think through? Yeah, I have a thought that... Um, uh, Sean, can you turn on Linda's mic, please? It's green. Okay, green away. I can also speak quite loud. So, um, yeah, I feel like in my lifetime, in my 
four decades plus of being a believer, I haven't faced the type of kind of persecution or doubt in Christianity until this season of my life. But there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. What God's word has in it and what the early church went through perhaps is similar in their context. So for me to be a part of the study and to learn more about that, I want to react and pray and, and be a part of helping people to come to know Christ and perhaps what they went through could be helpful. Yes, yeah, so largely the first 300 years of the birth of the church was 300 years of intermittent persecution. It wasn't complete persecution. That wasn't really in towards the late 200s that it was global-wide persecution, so to speak. But yes, how did those who were despised by the culture preach the gospel to the culture? So that's, that's another great, great one. Maybe, maybe one more. Any value or no value in studying church history? Porter, the history professor. I don't know about that. Um, so often people are very focused on the present moment. They think no one's ever experienced this before, right? So I know what's been encouraging for me is to see that many of the errors we face today are the errors that were faced thousands of years ago, just with a different name. So seeing that this has been long fought over and that there are clear answers that the church fathers have laid out is very encouraging and very helpful. That's a really great. Thank you for that. That's a good segue. So e even for myself, I, I got saved uh, in a church tradition that was fairly anti-intellectual and anti-historical. And so whatever was happening right now was the best it's ever been or whatever we know now is all there's ever been to know and that's you know you've heard me joke the idea that christianity is older than 1982 or 2002 or 1962 we have a tendency to think that our location our moment uh, as christians is what it's always been like for everybody around the world and what our knowledge and experience our persecution or, or lack thereof is that's what it's always been like and that's not the case and so I was in a tradition that devalued church history as if they were intellectual Neanderthals or I don't know what it was. It was just this, this impoverished, um, ignorant, and therefore arrogant environment that I was in. Um, but there is a lot of richness. One way I like to think about this is um, if you have, have or had a grandparent who loved Jesus and you could sit with them and, and listen to them talk about walking with Christ in their marriage, in the workplace, down through the ages, we ought to respectfully learn from and imitate our elders in the faith. So I certainly want to hear from my grandparents, but what about my great-great-grandparents? Well, I'd want to hear about from them too. What about great-great-great and, and so on? So um, we are standing on the shoulders of our great to many generations, grandparents in the faith. And so it's to our blessing and benefit to, as Porter pointed out, not or Sam, proximity to the apostles. So one idea is that if they're closer to the apostles, but we're 2,000 years away, if there's any distortion, like has any bad theology crept into our theology and can they correct us? That's one reason to look at church history. And also, there's no new heresies under the sun. It's, it's repackaged same heresies. And so if they gave their blood and their lives and their, the ink of their pens on scrolls 
to protect the gospel, we would do well to listen to them so that our understanding of the gospel can be protected. So that's, those are just some reasons why it'd be good to study church history. Now, your notes, uh, you look in your lap, I have them up here overhead. Here's something that I, I want to point out. We'll just jump right down to three. There's, there's more in your notes than I intend to talk about, and your notes are the same as my notes. And so you can go through and read some things that I might gloss over, and then if you have questions about it, I'm happy to, to address them. But here at number three on page one, we should not be surprised uh, that the church's understanding of who God is has unfolded matured and been clarified across time. The church has not added or subtracted from the Bible's teaching. Rather, the church has prayerfully grown deeper in her understanding of God. That's that's what church history is. After all, theological reflection stands on the shoulders of previous theological reflection. The key point I'm trying to make is that the formation of councils and creeds and confessions did not add to the Bible, but clarified, synthesized, and summarized what was already understood to be in the Bible. So, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity was not an alien idea added to Scripture in the 300s. Rather, in the 300s, they clarified, so to speak, what was in the Bible, because a heretic rose up and said, no Trinity. I mean, it's a little more complex than that. But then that caused the church to say, well, let's, let's address that, that issue. And, and so sometimes I think we have this thought that when God made Adam and then he made Eve, he also put the completed Bible into their hands. But the, the canon of scripture, God in his wisdom and providence gave it to us over roughly a 1600-year period. And that reality in no way undermines the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, inspiration of, of Scripture, and more. It just means that God gave his uh, Bible to us slow drip over quite a bit of time. But when the church has the completed Bible, our understanding of God matures. You know it in your own life. Hopefully you know more of the Lord and know him better at this season of life than you did in a previous season of life. And that's where you can see right here I have... Uh, this, this banner verse that makes me think of what we're doing in this time together. We're told at the end of Second Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? It's, like not the, it's not like the Matrix movie where you can just plug the thing in the back of your head and then download the Bible and you know God perfectly. But we know him truthfully and we know him experientially. What does that mean? To know God truthfully means that I take his word, I hide it in my heart, I believe it, But then as I just go about my day, wrestle against personal sin, wrestle against sins against me, doubts, things along those lines, I experience the truth of God's word applied in my life. And that's a part of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ is. One thing that um, I think is a beautiful reality is here in Ephesians, what I want you to note in this verse is what we will be doing in the next age. Meaning, when we enter into glory, new heavens, new earth, new glorified bodies, of all the many things that we're going to be doing, look at one of the things that we will be doing here. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then here it is. So that in the coming ages, he, that's the father, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So another way to say what's going on there is that one of the things that we'll be doing in glory is growing ever deeper in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Understanding of more, more of who God is and his character and his kindness towards us in the gospel. The argument I'm trying to make is that's not just an individual reality, it's a corporate reality. So in one sense, you can think of the church like a child born in AD 33, and then the global church has been growing into a mature adult for the past 2,000 or so years. And the church universal is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so there's been teachers and great-grandparents in the faith who are protecting and explaining and teaching and clarifying the faith for us. So any, any questions on that, what, what I'm, this argument? And this is an argument for, this is why we look at church history. How did doctrine develop and how, how were our beliefs protected and more? Any questions? Here's a statement I want you to memorize. Theological clarity is forged out of theological controversy. Theological clarity is forged out of theological controversy, usually. For example, someone teaches that Jesus was merely a phantom and never actually became flesh. And you say, that's not true. And then they say to you, well, prove it. Where, where would you go in the Bible to show that Jesus was not, not merely a phantom? Rhetorical question. Where would you go in the Bible to show that? And then, um, does it even matter to the gospel? Did, did Jesus need to become flesh in order to save us? Or could he have just been a spirit ghost who phantomed around and then fake died on the cross and fake cried out when nails were put into him? Does, does it matter? We're going to find out that it matters because if you don't have Jesus in the flesh, you don't have the gospel and you're not saved. So but that, that's part of the challenges. That's part of the challenges. So I don't have in here, but what we're going to see, I, I'm, um, I'm not a betting man, but I'll make a gentleman's bet, that we're going to increasingly see, it's already out there, we're going to increasingly see that people are going to tell us that Jesus was an alien. I don't know if you're watching the news what's going on with all the UAPs and things like that, but it's, it's going to, it's, it, which is demonic activity, by the way. Um, but it's going to be said that Jesus is an alien and that he is just some greater being than us who has come, and because of our low uh, intellect that he's kind of pretending to be a god, but really he's just sort of like an alien. How would you address that from, from Scripture? 
I think about maybe talking about the eternality of God, the preexistence of Jesus. I'd go to John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and, and so on. So theological clarity is forged out of theological controversy. Someone makes a, a claim about anything in the Bible, and then our task is to go back to the Bible and to show where that claim, if it's not true, is, is not true. So what we're going to discover in our time together, that as heretics arose across the centuries, their false claims led the church to go back to the scriptures, defend and clarify what the Bible teaches against that heresy. And in this strange way, heresy has actually helped the church grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and articulate that knowledge for generations to come in creeds and confessions. In creeds and confessions. And then like Porter said, there are no new heresies, just repackaged old ones. Thus the study of church history and the early creeds not only build our faith in the God of the gospel, it also guards us from modern day repackaged false gospels. I know that's in your notes. I'm going to hide it as if you can't see it. Question, why does doctrine matter? And the word doctrine simply means teaching. What are some reasons doctrine matters? Or, or maybe it doesn't matter. So tell me why it doesn't matter and see what happens. What are some reasons why doctrine matters? What do you think? <clears throat> why does what the Bible teaches, is it important? I'm not laying a trap. <laughs> Go ahead. Ladies first. Yes. Ahead, I think doctrine is important because then you'll be able to spot what's not true. So you got to know what's true to be able to spot what's false. Excellent. What else? I mean, she's hit it right on the head, obviously, you know. Um, so that we know how to live, honestly. How, how to live? Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, you try things, it doesn't work. You try something else, it, it works. You write it down. Um, you don't understand something. If But if you have somebody who's already gone through it and already done it, then you can just look at what they did and go, okay, don't eat the one with blueberries because that will kill you, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's you have, a, you have a salvific, a salvation component to it that if I believe something wrong, I might actually believe a false gospel. And then there's actually just what the Bible teaches about I love Jesus. How do I follow Jesus in my daily life? I need to know that too because I don't want to displease my savior and I also don't want to live like an idiot. So that helps. Yes. So one of the thing one of the things I think when it comes to doctrine that's important is if you talk about in the history of the church, we've had people address different heresies. What's to say that a certain heresy was addressed but then there was a split among that church and the followers of that church then went to a separate one. So the how we address it and how doctrine is addressed is important. In my Excellent point. Diane. Our faith needs to be grounded on something, and we want it to be grounded on God's word. What he's told us is true. 
rather than like feelings or emotions or something like that. That's great. A couple more. Um, ever, everyone's already given really good um, reasons why the why um, doctrine matters um, to set your foundation on truth. Um, but to to go along with what Chad was saying, um, I feel like there is like a very real possibility of separation um, within the church. Um, and like I know I've spoken to people as well who like believe in you know in um, Lilith and Adam and Eve, or even just like, it's interesting like how these small little details can like completely change um, what we're actually supposed to be doing and the real foundation of our truth, so. That's such a great point. Like that last point, especially like the small little details mm -hmm. can seem so minor and that's where heresies often hide. So if, you know, if you're gonna go on a hike and your visibility is off, but let's say that you're just you're using a compass and you're and you're one degree off. Then your first few steps, or even your first few mile or so, you won't even necessarily know that you're off. But then, to mix the metaphor, take that through decades and centuries, then you have false doctrines that are so embedded people don't even know. And we're going to see that that exists today because of those very things. Let's let's keep moving. So um, here's here's one reason why doctrine matters, because false gods, fake Jesuses, and fraudulent gospels cannot save. They only condemn you to hell. So the identity of Jesus, to confess that Jesus is Lord, sounds like a really simple statement, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay, but when you say Jesus is Lord, what, what does that mean? Where does the doctrine of the Trinity fit in that and, and more? So there's a lot of important things to think about. So here's just a long list of different passages. I'll read the first one. From the lips of Christ himself, he says, is my mic having trouble? Or can you guys hear me? We can hear you. Okay. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 2 Corinthians, false apostles. Galatians, false brothers. Thessalonians talks about the lawless one coming with false signs and wonders. So there's signs and wonders. Things are going to happen that ooh and ah, they're inexplicable, but it's the activity of Satan. Uh, there's something called the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Peter tells us false prophets, false teachers, destructive heresies, false words, and, and on down it goes. There, there's, there's so many more texts we can look at, but to just survey the New Testament, there are so many warnings that these destructive teachings, at one degree off, which is actually an eternity off, but when they show up, the thing is, the way lies work and deception works, and since Satan masquerades as an angel of light, is... I just think we have a tendency to think that we can spot the lie so easily or see Satan or a demon or a false teacher so easily, but that's not the case. Acts 20, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, 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 there's more. There's, there's so much more to think about. I want you to think about Satan's tactics. So again, this is under the idea of why does doctrine matter? And, and we're trying to lay out this idea of 
how do heretics work? How do false teachers work? Sometimes we're going to see in the history of the church that false teachers were really, they seemed to be well-meaning. They just were very wrong, and they refused to repent of their wrongness when they were shown what the Bible said. And then that's when things got really sideways. But ever since the Garden of Eden, here's kind of five key ways Satan works and demons. First is, is doubt, right? He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? So one way that false teachers work, we're going to see, is they're going to sow some type of seed of doubt where you maybe it does mean something else. I just can't see how that'd be true in this day and age. And, and then on it goes. So not only is it doubt, but then he outright denies the word. You will not surely die. He disparages God's character, motive, and word. God knows that when you eat and eat of God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, deified, knowing good and evil. So he's subtly causing you to question God's character. And in questioning God's character, that sows more doubt. How about division? This is kind of implied in Genesis 3, where all these quotes come from. Satan works to divide Eve from Adam, and then from Adam and Eve from God. He divides and conquers. That's one of his tactics. And so, um, you know, we can think of texts in the pastoral epistles that talk about how false teachers creep into households to, um, the text says, to, in essence, capture immature women, it's little women, but that does not mean that guys can't be captured too. We all invite it into our own pockets when we scroll on the screens. So divide and conquer is to get us in the dark and to hear untrue things and no one to be around us to help us think through that those untrue things are in fact untrue. And then distortion. The effect of Satan's tactics is to confuse the truth of God just enough as to get a person off course by just a degree to sow suspicion, hesitancy about God and himself. So doctrine matters because God's glory matters, living faithfully matters, living well matters, eternal life and eternal death matter, the gospel matters. Doctrine matters because it counters false doctrine. So in a day and age when... Um, Maybe some of you have heard this. Maybe some of you who are a little bit more senior in the faith have heard the idea that, well, doctrine divides. It does in right ways, and it does in wrong ways. And it divides in healthy ways, and it can divide in unhealthy ways. Just case in point, uh, my good friend Josh at the Presbyterian Church. We are unified in our shared understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are divided on our understanding of baptism and a few other things. But we are divided, but still have the right hand of fellowship extended to each other and love each other in Christ. That's what I mean by a good, unified form of division. But then, when there is error and, um, and yeah, false doctrine, we, we need to divide. It's what we believe matters. It has eternal consequences how we live in this life and in the next. So the next thing I want to argue, not just that doctrine matters, but that Christians are a confessional people. 
But some of you are going to be really familiar with that and say, of course we are. And some of you are going to say, what? So if you would have gone back to the 21-year-old me, college me, all the way even through 28, uh, and the tradition I was in, I would have not known what that meant, other than it sounds old and stuffy. What does it mean that we're confessional? It means that we say something. It means that we say something is true, and we say it out loud, and we believe it. So here's Jesus and Peter having a conversation in Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And because of this, this is historically called the great confession. And because Peter makes the great confession, um, he, Peter is blessed because he's confessed the gospel. I, I quoted Romans 9 earlier. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Uh, here in John 9, the uh, religious bad guys made a decision that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. So we are a people of the book who have a body of knowledge that we both say and guard. We are a confessional people. And, and so one of the things that we're going to see, and it's the name of this class, credo, that's a Latin term that means I believe. And in the history of the church, creeds have been written, and there's four main ones that we're going to look in our time together, four main creeds, which are summaries of the gospel and declarations of the gospel, creeds that we confess, that all believers who claim Jesus would confess these because they are a uh, distillation of what the Bible teaches about the gospel. And we'll see those when we get to them. But there is, especially in uh, non-denominational, seeker-sensitive, and some Baptist and Baptistic circles, an anti-confessionalism. An idea that, well, um, no creed but the Bible. So no creed but the Bible. Let's, let's see how that works. That's what I was taught. No creed but the Bible. Now that sounds good. Sounds very pious and godly to me. No creed but the Bible. Don't give me any man-made stuff. Just give me the Jesus stuff. No creed but the Bible. So then you ask me, when I say no creed but the Bible, when you ask me, well, who's God? And how do I get saved? And what comes next? Unless I purely quote scripture to you, I'm going to use my own words to summarize to you who God is, what the way of salvation is, and what comes next. I'm, in effect, saying my own creed to you. And so the idea is any time that we're not quoting scripture but summarizing it, paraphrasing, or something along those lines, we're kind of getting creedal. We're saying what you should believe and we should put into practice. So what ends up happening is when people say no creed but the Bible, it's actually no creed but the Bible and how I interpret it. And everyone else is wrong. Whereas the creeds of the church have been hammered out by our great-grandparents in the faith and um, received by millions, billions of Christians down through the ages. And so um, on the surface, it sounds like a good statement, no creed but the Bible. The problem is, many heretics would say the same thing. We're going to see, as we look at these creeds, that heretics use the Bible to teach heresies. 
They use the same verse the other guy uses. They just interpret it differently and apply it differently. Or they take a misinterpretation on a word and then just get off that degree and then so and go sideways. So um, one of the reasons why creeds are helpful is they are not over the Bible. They're not superior to the Bible. They don't rival the Bible, but they are a supplement to our faith, which, which we'll see as we, um, as we keep going. And then finally, just some things to look at here. These are just examples about warnings in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the body of faith. How about Jude tells us to contend for the faith. So, so a, when someone is saying really wrong things about Jesus, about the church, gender, sexuality, marriage, then one of our responsibilities with wisdom and tact and gentleness is to determine when and how to refute or to contend, to wrestle for the truth of Scripture. Uh, Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for your love for Jesus, for the reason for the hope that is in you. So in one sense, history, the history of the church is one of guarding, contending for, and defending the gospel of Jesus Christ against external heresies and then internal heresies that rise up within the, within the church. It's one way to understand um, and I'm suggesting that doctrine has not changed over millennia. It's been clarified and sharpened. And that's one of the charges that people will make. Sneaky Christians snuck into the Bible. They changed the Bible and all kinds of conspiracies as if, um, yeah, there's a big conspiracy. There's not. The church has, has guarded. The church of 2023 stands on the shoulders of our great-grandparents through the ages. We are debtors to them for defending the gospel for us. And we, should the Lord tarry, need to do the same thing for our grandchildren. Key terms, and I'll see if there's any questions. There's lots of key terms. So if I say weird words, raise your hand. I might be making it up, or I'll make up a definition for you. But until then, so the word doctrine simply means teaching, shouldn't scare us off. That's, we get indoctrinated every Sunday when we, right now you're getting indoctrinated. <laughs> um, orthodoxy just means right worship. It's the received body of truth guarded and passed on from one generation to the next. So then heresy or heretic is false doctrine. It's false teaching. It's not orthodoxy. So a heretic preaches heresy. And then theology, because we're going to be exposed to these things. Theology, fancy word, it's just studying, it's the study of God. And within theology, there's exegetical theology. And the purpose of exegetical theology is to make sure that we actually have the right text and the right words, and we're saying the right things, and we understand it the right way, right definitions. That's what, that's what that fancy phrase means. Biblical theology it's a discipline of studying, it's the study of God and his gospel as it unfolds across the canon of scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, tracing themes, terms, patterns, and concepts as God presents them. It reads with the grain of scripture. Whereas systematic theology 
organizes and systematizes what the Bible teaches on a given topic, much like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. So if I say, what does the Bible say about Jesus and salvation? You'd pull together some verses, uh, properly interpreted, and you'd put them together, and you would say, here's a summary of who Jesus is and salvation. If I said, can you tell me the story of how we got to Jesus? Then you might go from Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and David's son, Jesus, or something along those lines going across the grain of Scripture. And in systematic theology, there are all these sub-disciplines, and, and you, can, you can see them there. What we are engaging in is historical theology. Historical theology is how the church has understood, defended, and developed doctrine across time, often in response, though not always, to challenges to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So that's the introduction. That's me trying to convince you from the Bible that we should be excited and interested in church history, and it actually has tremendous value to our lives. Uh, any questions before we move on to the next section? Any clarifications? Yes. Um, so going back to earlier when you were talking about like um, good little disagreements versus like bad disagreements, how do you di distinguish between those? Such a good question. Such a good question. Uh, more than I can get into now. Dodged your question. <laughs> One way to think about it is a bullseye, a target with three circles. You have gospel matters, church matters, conscience matters. Gospel matters, every Christian must believe, or they're not a Christian, and even we should be willing to die for, probably. Part of what we're doing in this class is putting all the gospel matters into that center bullseye. Um, and that's going to be the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, truly God, truly man, um, and, and more. Church matters, do you baptize babies or not? Do you have women pastors or not? Do we speak in tongues or not? Things along those lines. Conscience matters. Um, our understanding of the end times. Maybe the kind of music that we sing. Whether we turn our chairs facing forward or not. <laughs> so I, I'm happy to ask, answer more on that. And I did a sermon series on that actually. Um, but anyways, very good question. What else? Yes, Diane. How do these different um, theologies, like, do they work together? Are they all, I, because I know that you, ha I've heard in the past that you're a biblical theologist, but obviously now we're doing historical theology, so do these, are these just all different ways of approaching the study of theology? Yes, one diamond, many sides. So they're all attempting to do the same thing, and they actually all require each other. So, that, so there's actually a logical order to the way I have them here in the notes. So that exegetical theology, that, f that fancy, if I'm, if I'm using the wrong dictionary to define the words, I'm just going to have wrong interpretation of the text. Um, and so that's important. But then I also need to make sure that I understand how the Bible fits together and unfolds. So that way, if I take a text to protect myself from being, taking it out of context, I need to know the paratext. 
paratext is what is the books that come before and after a certain text. So yeah, it all fits together. Adida. So I just want to, Ileana, I want to go back to her question just a little bit and ask you about false teachers. And I can think of some people in the church who seem like false teachers, like a really young Christian who wants to start teaching right away, but really just needs to be discipled. Um, like someone who grew up in a church that didn't teach good doctrine. And so I want to, I want to, I don't, I don't, I want to walk away tonight not writing off everybody who seems to be a false, a false teacher, but maybe they just need to be discipled. Yeah, you don't want to have like your theological conceal carry appendix, pull out your gun and just start just hair tick bullets on everybody because they're wrong. So one thing that should be very sobering and, and humbling in a really good Jesus way for us is that no human being, except for the ones in heaven, have perfect theology. So we all, beginning with the guy who stands here every week, has an imperfect theology. I have no desire to be a heretic, please believe me. And I'm gonna trust that you don't either. And that's where historical theology and more is, is uh, we test our understanding of scripture with our great grandparents in the faith that if I am um, discovering something that no one has ever seen before and no one agrees with, I'm a bad guy, probably a heretic, okay? And so, well, what about Martin Luther? And Martin Luther didn't discover justification by faith. He rediscovered it from the Bible and from early church history. Um, so, yeah, so it's really important to know that there's a humility and so that we have to deal with maturity. Is this somebody who just doesn't know and they need to be discipled? So someone denies the Trinity and then you disciple them to understand the Trinity and they say, nope, stupid idea. Then they're a heretic. Yeah. Um, just a quick question. You mentioned that the angels have perfect theology. How much do the demons know of theology? Like, do we have any grasp on that? The... Um, Well, yeah, angels and demons, do they have perfect theology? The, it's a really good question. They are not omniscient and they don't know all there is to know. So we know that part of God's unfolding plan, which is still unfolding, Bible's done, but there's more to come. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Talks about how angels, First Peter says, long to look into the plan of salvation. So they, they don't know those things. But in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, they understand that better than we do, but only God understands himself. So, so, none, none, so maybe perfect theology is an overstatement if you really want to split some theological hairs. Good question. Yes, Mandy, last question, then we'll get into some heresy. I'm going to teach you some heresy. <laughs> um, I what would you say to someone who kind of has the viewpoint of like, oh, well, the Holy Spirit will help me interpret the Bible and I can just trust the Spirit to help me interpret it correctly or whatever. What would kind of be your theological response to that? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. So there, there's a verse for that. At least two immediately come to mind that would be 
misapplied, if I understand what you're saying yet. So, uh, so I'm going to presume that the, the, the context of that is someone says, I don't need anyone to teach me the Bible because I've got the Holy Spirit. And then they could point to 1 Corinthians, which teaches the doctrine of illumination. Meaning, no one can understand the Bible unless you are born again and have the Spirit of God in you. At least understand it in a believing way. And then 1 John talks about you have no one need to teach you for the Spirit himself teaches you. Both of those texts, taken out of context, would lead to that conclusion, I don't need a teacher. Because think about when John says, you, have no one, you, you need no one to teach you because you have the Spirit in you. John is teaching him that. So it's a self-contradictory idea. And then everywhere else in the whole Bible, which is teaching to us, um, it's, we don't need someone to teach us that Jesus is Jesus. We need to hear the gospel. But what I mean is, when the Spirit of God is in us, and he applies, grants faith, and we exercise that faith, that's what that's talking about. So the Spirit has to give us understanding, but everywhere in the Bible, Ephesians, pastor, teachers, and more are gifts of the church. So that would be, at best, a misguided understanding, uh, and at worst, a destructive, isolating, heresy-producing understanding. Speaking of heresies, let's talk about it. Okay, so the first one, so we're kind of going in a chronological, historical order. This is circa A.D. 33. The gospel versus the Judaizers, Judaizers. And you can summarize their false gospel as the gospel plus something equals salvation. So now let's think about this. You begin to read in the book of Acts. So, so the book of Acts in your Bible chronicles roughly the first 30 years of the church. 30-year time period. And almost all, some would argue all, but almost all of the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, can be chronologically inserted into the book of Acts. Most of them. So when we, when we read the epistles and read Acts, we see that right away the church faced two things. Persecution for loving Jesus and preaching Jesus and um, heresy errors immediately introduced to steal the gospel from people. So the first heretical group are called the Judaizers. So let's, let's check out these guys. So for example, Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So they're with Christians, they're in the church, and here's, what here's, their, here's their sermon, here's their sloganeering. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what does the early church do? Paul writes Galatians, and we see here, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, that had to have been a heated argument. Like Luke is, is like, I don't know what he's doing there, but it's funny. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So there's this fight in Antioch. I think that's where they are. There's a fight somewhere. They don't settle it, so they want to go to Jerusalem, apostles and elders. Verse 4, 
when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, missionary report. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Look at that phrase, order them. So these are guys who claim to be Christians. And they're saying, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How would you answer that? And not only were they saying that you can't be saved, you have to order everybody to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up among them and said, and then he gives the explanation of why they're wrong. Galatians is a, another picture, uh, another description um, of, this, of this issue. So much of our New Testament is about clarifying the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ against these Judaizers. So for example, Ephesians 2 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at that. Do you see that? You see the this there? In the grammar of the Greek, that, that this, the this is like an arrow that points backwards as an umbrella over the whole entire previous statement. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So we don't read it, and as you don't say, grace is God's part, that's his contribution. Faith, I conjure up in my own heart, and that's my contribution. Paul's actually saying that's not true. That grace, salvation, and faith all of this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Not even, so now then we say, well, what does God believe for you? No, we're not robots. What this means is that faith is an alien outside of his gift. I don't mean extraterrestrial. <laughs> that comes to us. It's a gift that when God gives us the gift of faith, then we freely exercise that gift of faith to believe. But I can't sit there and just muster and conjure up my own faith and contribute my part. Even faith is a gift. I'm given it, then I believe. That's John chapter 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's, he's born again. The argument, again, 2 Timothy 1, who saved us, called us to holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. These are all verses that show that in the New Testament itself, over and over again, the Bible wants us to know that we are justified by grace through faith, not works. Why is this important? Here's some truth for today. Because it's no different today. The human heart remains addicted to want to add to or earn or take credit for salvation. The human heart wants to do, to do that. 
It's the guy that you talk to. It's the gal that you talk to who wants to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus. It's the person who says, you know what? I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I want to kind of live my life and then I'll believe in him when I get a little bit older or something like that, like a, a youth group kid told me once. So, so that, that's, the, that's what the, the human heart remains. This, it's still the same issue. And so when you look, for example, at modern-day Christian cults like Latter-day Saints, Mormons, or Jehovah's Witness, or any other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, any reincarnation, any, of, any other religion other than biblical Christianity is going to tell you that you have to do things to appease the gods or God to get a better reincarnated life or any of those things. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ says that there is nothing you can do because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And God has to do all of it. And so when we share the gospel with people, we have to know that we're going to be confronted with people who want to take credit or contribute to their salvation. Any attempt to add to the gospel, Jesus plus something else equals salvation, is a non-gospel and cannot save. It really matters. Like, why is it a big deal? Why is it a big deal that that's the case? Because if we add to the gospel, it's not the gospel. It's not the biblical, what the Bible teaches anymore. So here, here's an, here is an example that I have encountered more here in Flagstaff than I ever did when I was living and doing ministry in California or in Oregon. And for whatever reason here in town, it's pretty strong that baptism is needed for salvation. And that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. So I just want to take a few, few minutes to actually address this. And I'm addressing this as a Baptist, since we are a Baptist church. We're not Lutheran or Roman Catholic. So how do we answer this? If someone tells you you're not saved because you're not baptized. It is true. It is absolutely true that you can read the New Testament pretty quick and you can come away with a handful of verses that really do sound like that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. So in this math, it's faith plus baptism equals salvation. And that's heresy. So for example, here's, here's a, a, um, a chief offending or rather misinterpreted passage. 1 Peter 3. Peter's just been talking about Noah and the flood and his family getting saved. So I insert some uh, comments here. Baptism, Peter says, which corresponds to this, that's Noah and his family being saved through the flood. Look at that. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Do you see it in your Bible or in the piece of paper here? Now saves you. Man. That really looks like Paul was wrong that we're not saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God so that no one can boast. really seems like I need to have faith and then also uh, go underwater. How, how do we answer this? Now look at, what, look what Peter does. 
Baptism which corresponds. So baptism in some way is a type of Noah's flood. What happened in Noah's flood? Well, God told Noah. Noah believed God and it was credited to him righteousness, applying Abraham to Noah. And then because Noah believed God, he built a boat because he was a believer and he, his family got saved through the waters. So Peter's making this argument that somehow Christian baptism is a lot like Noah's flood and it saves us. And he clarifies, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's a weird statement. What's he talking about? He's saying baptism is not something that's external. As in, there's this action that I do that contributes to my salvation. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as, a, not as something external, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So I'm going to argue that I'm going to admit, one, this is a hard text. Two, what I'm going to say is that Peter himself says, I'm not talking about external stuff, removing dirt. I'm talking about internal stuff, appealing to God for a good conscience, which I would say it this way. A good conscience is reflecting a pre-existing faith. In the same way that Noah believed God, and so then he obeyed and built a boat, we believe God and are saved, and then we also get baptized. Baptism is often the first act of obedience uh, when we are believers. There's some qualifications there, but it's typically the first act of, of obedience. That's the, that's the, uh, the most difficult uh, passage um, that someone could, could appeal to. But what I also want to say, as we think through it, is that the teaching of the entirety of the Bible is that salvation is not by any work of obedience. So this passage would either be a contradiction, like Peter fell and hit his head and got up and wrote something wrong, or it's a difficult-to-interpret passage. And since Scripture interprets Scripture, we use clearer passages to understand other passages. And if you took a scale, and let's put all the verses that talk about how we're saved by grace through faith, not works, and how many verses seem to say that we need to be baptized to be saved, there's two verses that sound like you need to be baptized to be saved, and there are thousands of verses that talk about salvation as a gift of God by faith. So that's if I was going to talk to somebody. But this is a real living reality of people who have family members in our church, in churches, so-called churches, in town that teach this. We've had people come to our church with this being their background and then getting baptized for the first time uh, because the reason they got baptized for the first time is because they got baptized the non-first time, they thought it was saving them. They did not have the gospel when they got baptized. They had a false gospel of Jesus plus works. So there's more in the notes. I deal with some stuff in James that you can look at. I want to ask this question. So let me, let me, these final two things on page nine. So I just want you to note how the gospel controversy even in Bible times, 
gave rise to the first church-wide council. That was Acts 15. And this sets a precedence for future church councils that we'll look at that give rise, rise to creeds. Um, Peter and Paul, what do we do? Let's go to Jerusalem. We need to have a meeting with everybody, the apostles and elders. We need to figure out, do you need to be circumcised or not to be saved? And so here I took that contemporary example, baptism, because that's a tricky one. So uh, any questions? I rifled through this one. I rifled through it. But any questions on the gospel of grace versus the Judaizers? Okay, self-reflection time. What might be some tendencies in your own heart? What might some tendencies in your own heart look like that rely on works rather than grace? So what I'm trying to say here is that we as Christians have a tendency to think we really need the gospel of salvation by grace through faith to get into Christianity and then move away from the gospel and really just do it all myself. But our reliance on the gospel is the engine to drive. It's why we are happy to obey. So I'm just curious if any of you have a, uh, or you could just say what your neighbor's sins problems are. (laughs) Or your husband. What are some ways that we can functionally turn into Judaizers in our walk with Christ? Danny, there it comes. Legalism, because I had to deal with that when I was 11 years old. Because up in Alaska, we went to some friend's house. I noticed there wasn't a TV. And I asked, where's the TV? And the guy said, TV's ball or bail, however you guys say it. He, uh-huh. I just heard bail. Yeah. But anyways. A, a, de- I, a demon god. Yeah. But. Fake god. Even though I was 11 years old, I knew even then, it's not the TV. It's what you watch. But that's what I got. My, but that's the biggest thing is legalism. Yeah, setting up. We sometimes setting up personal boundaries is a really important thing for us to do. Cut out the right eye, cut off the right hand. Metaphor, not literal. But when we start taking those things that we need and then require it of others where they have freedom, we begin to rely on our ability to do a work to make ourselves pleased with God or God pleased with us rather than walking in grace. That's a, that's a great example. Any other example? So that was the example of legalism. Any other examples of ways that we can uh, slip into being functional Judaizers? Sam. Feeling like uh, when we sin, we have to atone. We have to be guilty for a certain amount of time. We have to do our penance. Even though we know that Christ has forgiven us, we still end up putting ourselves through the emotional ringer or the Spiritual ringer, if you will. None of us knows what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's probably the chief offender. Like the, those moments when we need the gospel most, the very place that we should go to when we sin, once again at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, we tend to, I need to pray more, read the Bible more, be a better evangelist. I need to 
I need to do everything without looking at Jesus. That's, that's very, very good. One more, one more. Craig. Um, how, do, how do we put this together with uh, being a member of a church or where you sign a document? Isn't, isn't that moving towards legalism? That is a really good question, and yes, I think we should we should change our church covenant. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, that was just me speaking, not uh, on behalf of the elders. They agree. Um, I would say the difference is that's okay. That's an excellent question because there's an element. So it's a church covenant, and the question is, how big should that covenant be? So, for example, Dave speaking, our church covenant covenants that you, that you will be in a home fellowship. And we didn't have home fellowships for a long time. And we don't have enough home fellowships right now to accommodate everyone. And some people can't make a home fellowship. Are they in sin? I, I think that we should remove that from our church covenant because it is binding the conscience. We shouldn't do that. That would be an example of, 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 of something um, but remember, with covenant, that's also something that you make in marriage. You make that agreement or you covenant with each other, make that an, an oath. So there needs to be something, but oh, how easy it is to make it too much. Really, really good, good point. Let's get into Gnosticism versus the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have heard of the term Gnosticism before? Okay, thank you. So notice the date. We've jumped from pretty close to the resurrection of Jesus now to around 130, the year 130. Okay, so we've jumped about 100 years. But it would be wrong to think that just poof, out of thin air, this thing called Gnosticism crept up. Excuse me. Um, it was a belief system, kind of, that began probably around the time of Christ, a little bit before the time of Christ, and was slowly growing adjacent to the gospel. And then, then there became, in the uh, really early 100s, about 130, this thing just blew up because it was like a uh, tick that burrowed into Christianity. So, so what's Gnosticism? Gnosticism uh, is secret information and knowledge that no one can refute. Um, it's like saying, God told me. So let's talk about this, because that's what they said. Here's a quote, Gnosticism is not a specific heretical movement in church history. Rather, it's a loose collection of different religious beliefs. You would have a Gnostic teacher. There would be the guy or the gal who had secret knowledge, and then disciples would flock around that Gnostic teacher. Gnosticism likely arose around the time of Christ, as I said. What in the world does that word mean? The term is from the Greek gnosis, which just means knowledge. So Gnosticism is just knowledge. 
A Gnostic teacher would claim special or secret insider knowledge of the world, salvation, and gather disciples around them. So because it wasn't one set of beliefs, it's more of you, you kind of you look at these teachers and they have similar ideas. And those similar ideas uh, put them under the umbrella of Gnosticism, but they each had their own species or brand, if that makes sense. So here's, here are some hallmarks of Gnosticism. And by the way, as weird as that word sounds, just the Gnosticism, try to figure out how to spell it, okay? So you have this weird word that seems so old and ancient, and yet that is one of the prevailing uh, heresies alive today. Now, Gnosticism was not just a um, Christian heresy. It could have been a Jewish heresy. It could be, it, it, like I said, it was a parasite that would latch on to whatever belief system. And usually it was a pick-and-choose theology that would blend different ideas together. So what are some, what are some common beliefs shared among Gnostic teachers? Okay, again, secret knowledge on top of and superseding biblical revelation. I know the Bible says that, but God told me. And I just want you to point out, note how it becomes impossible to argue against secret knowledge since it's secret. Well, how do you know that's true? It's a secret. <laughs> how do you know that's true? God told me. Are you going to argue with God? So it's a slippery slope. It's, it's, it's really hard to pin someone down on this. You, you can't prove it's not true unless you have another authority. The book. Okay, here's what else they would teach. Not all, but some, actually most all, excuse me, there are many gods. So it's super complicated. And there's all these crazy words of these like, archons and like it sounds like you're watching star trek you like all these different there's basically there's this unknowable supreme god that's way back there and then he has these emanations that whatever an emanation is emanates from him and these emanations are other deities and then they emanate deities and then they emanate deities um and then there's good ones and bad ones. Does that make sense? You can draw a picture of that. I mean, part of, part, of, part of this is just how confusing it is. That sounds nuts. It's because it is. However, there's a supreme unknown God who made many lesser evil and good gods. Now, here's what Gnosticism teaches. One of the evil gods created the earth and people. What's the implication for Genesis 1? And the evil God said, let there be light. So the God of the Bible is that evil God in Gnosticism. And in some versions of Gnosticism, Satan is the hero come to free Adam and Eve from the captivity and tyranny of the evil creator God. How many of you saw the movie Noah with uh, Russell Crowe with Gladiator. I didn't. You guys are horrible people. Just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. Isn't, is there, 
I heard that in, in that movie, there's this presentation where Satan seems like a good guy. Am I off base on that? Am I making stuff up? Totally rock creatures, yeah. Church movie night. Well, so... So in some versions, Satan is the hero. Think about that. This is an inversion of the gospel. Did God really say? In this, Satan's on a rescue mission. You know why? Because Adam and Eve were in bondage and prison to their physical bodies. Their spirits need to be released. Why? Because Gnostics teach... Matter is evil, whereas the spiritual is pure. So here's a, here's a quote. Uh, a human being is a divine spark that originated in the transcendent divine world and by means of gnosis, that's, that's the secret knowledge, if you get to the right teacher and the right teacher gives you the right knowledge, you can be released from the cosmic prison and return to the heavenly origin. The human body, on the other hand, is part of the cosmic prison from which the spirit, it's the real person, must be redeemed. So salvation is getting out of your body. Gnosticism borrowed and syncretized from other religions, especially from Christianity. So as Christianity is exploding, then Gnosticism is also uh, uh, like a leech, like a parasite attaching itself uh, to Christianity. And here's the thing. They would use Bible words. So they're using the same uh, vocabulary with different definitions, like Latter-day Saints do and Jehovah's Witness do. So that means then if you were an immature Christian, meaning that you just you don't know the faith very well, if, if you, yeah, whatever the deal was, you could be easy prey to someone who sounds like they're saying really good Bible things and Jesus stuff and fancy Bible words and have a completely different definition. And then you get that one degree off and then there you go. They would teach that since matter is evil, Jesus could not have become flesh or suffer. And depending upon the teacher, Gnostics practice either hedonism, indulging the flesh entirely, since it's bad anyways, or asceticism, hurting and hating the flesh and a lot of physical uh, torture to themselves. But a key word I, I skipped real quick, Syncretized, what does that mean? Think like, you know, you sync your phone. Um, syncretism is the sin of Jesus plus other religious ideas and basically making your own religion. Examples of infamous, so bad famous, Gnostic texts. Uh, many of these were discovered in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1946. But look at the titles of these Gnostic books. The Prayer of the Apostle Paul. But that sounds biblical to me. How about this? Gospel of Truth. A Treatise on the Resurrection. Have you heard of this one? Gospel of Thomas. I forget why, but it was making it was, its rounds. Da Vinci Code? Does that talk about Gospel of Thomas? Yeah. It's neither the gospel nor by Thomas. <laughs> Same thing with the gospel of Philip. And then, oh, here's a cool one. 
Can you say it? The hypostasis of the archons. All right, so uh, Sophia of Jesus. Sophia is Greek for wisdom, so that's the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Um, first and second apocalypse of James, apocalypse of Adam. And how about this one? The Acts of Peter and the Twelve Apostles. Don't confuse that with the book of Acts, because it's not. It's, a, it's something different. Notice that many of these texts are pseudonyms called pseudepigrapha, i.e. falsely attributed works, meaning that they're written as if an apostle wrote it, or even Jesus himself gave revelation for it, but they're writing him 200 years after the closing of the New Testament, or more, give or take. There's a, there's a wide span. They were, they were writing in the 130s, and they kept writing uh, basically fake Bible books to confuse Christians. There was a church father in that time, actually many of them, but Irenaeus of Lyons was a chief defender of Christianity against Gnosticism around the 150s. And he wrote one of the oldest, famous, post-Bible Christian books, and it was called Against Heresies. And so a lot of what we know now is from Irenaeus' work of where he is, as a pastor, looking at all the different heresies. And if you think about it, so they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have internet, so you would have localized um, false teachers in a town that really had no one else to combat that false teaching. And if you had uh, even believers who didn't know their Bibles well, they could be uh, captured by that false teaching. And so there wasn't really a way to expose that false teaching. So Irenaeus writes against heresies around the 150s. There were other uh, church fathers who wrote also. But much of what we know from the early church since the early church was defending itself against the Roman Empire and against false teachers, they were called the apologists. Not because they were sorry for being Christians, but apology means to give a defense. And so they were defenders of the faith. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was, uh, had known the Apostle John. So pretty cool. So how does this apply to today? Not, so for example, I know this is kind of dated. Gnosticism and Gnostic Christian texts were the premise of Dan Brown's book or movie, The Da Vinci Code. The idea is that there's a conspiracy. The conspiracy is that the apostles suppressed the truth about Jesus. They were the sneaky Christians. They made up a fake Jesus Face, fake stories about Jesus, and they hid the truth about Jesus, but the Gnostics rediscovered the truth. That's the conspiracy. And so they made up all this stuff, and that's actually the basis of the Da Vinci Code, about Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene and other stupid things. Okay, how about this? Gnostic ideas today are deeply woven into New Age spiritualism, field trip, Sedona. The idea is that the emotional, so, so check this out. This is super important. Well, no one use, uh, okay. You can actually, I think it's Gnostic.com. So there really is people who, who 
practice ancient Gnosticism now by reading these texts and do their stuff. But there's also the, the demonic spirit behind Gnosticism repackages it. So how is it repackaged today? Whenever the idea is that your emotional, spiritual, or intuitive realm is superior to and overrides the Bible. It's really important to say that again. Whenever the emotional, just think through that. A lot of times, the reasons we don't embrace certain things the Bible teaches is because we don't like it. It's not that we don't understand it, but it's we don't like it. Um, or anytime that the spiritual part of us, the intuitive realm is overrides what the Bible says, we are being Gnostics. We need to, uh, and this is Gnostic ideas. I'm not telling us to do this. Don't take this out of context. We need to disassociate with our physical selves to get in tune with the real true mystery of our spiritual divine selves. All religious gurus and philosophers are valid guides into the unknown, and Jesus was merely a unique special guide. So put in a little Buddha, and put in a little Jesus, Muhammad, and whoever. Pick and choose your own path. The mystery of the divine is and is in all of us. So we're divine, you're divine, we're all divine, the divine's in us, outside of us. It's the one-ism that if you were here last year, we talked a lot, whole lot about. The idea that we just get in tune with the universe. And you even hear it in movies, right? Listen to any TV show now. They don't say God anymore other than as a cuss word. It's usually the universe told me or the universe brought us together. Pay attention uh, if you haven't noticed that yet. Uh, I'm not into Oprah. I just saw this quote. <laughs> One of Oprah's featured books was The Secret, which has been around for a long time, tons of spinoffs. Without the power, without the power, you would not have been born. Without the power, there would have, wouldn't be a single human being on the planet. And every discovery and invention and human creation comes from the power. Perfect health, incredible relationships, a career you love, a life filled with happiness, the money you need to be and do and have, everything you want, all come from the power. The power is within you. Now, buy my book, right? Is that Tony Robbins or any of these guys? I mean, this, this, it's, you can see how the self-help industry is just fused with this, these ideas. And couldn't you see how a Christian could look at that and go, well, okay, the power, that's weird, but I believe in the power. It's God. He's the Father. And, and there's only one God and three persons. But a, a, um, a Christian could be, make themselves susceptible to the false teaching by just putting Christian definitions to these words and, and more. The current cultural rise of notions like you do you. The billboards are down in the valley. How many of you are from the valley? You see the... We were driving through there recently and there were, I think it was a casino. I don't remember what it was for, but it was just you do you. You do you, be true to yourself. Let the authentic you out. Along with the non-binary, transgender movement, etc., they all imply, think about that, the phrase, you do you, 
the authentic you needs to come out. They all imply the real you is what you feel on the inside and should not be bound or limited by the flesh. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And no one can say that what you feel or think is wrong. An idea is that the physical you has no bearing on the inner spiritual immaterial you. So, so you can change your gender is, is what is thought at the surface level. Uh, you can identify as the seven-year-old girl that we learned about last year. Even though you're a 55-year-old guy who drives a lawnmower. If you missed that in the class last time, that's a, that's a teaser. All this... These ideas that we're facing in our cultural moment is repackaged Gnosticism, where I have an inner truth that no one can say is wrong, dispute, and no one else has access to my truth because it's my truth, postmodernism, and you just need to believe, support, and celebrate and endorse me. That is Gnosticism. It's secret knowledge that can't be argued against, and it says that the immaterial is superior to the material you. And the physical you, if you don't like it, that's because it's wrong. And you need to identify with the immaterial you. Questions, clarifications with our last two minutes. Yes. Um, during the time where the like um, Gnostic texts that you listed were like in major circulation, was that all like... Was the Apocrypha, Apocrypha recognized as Bible then? No. Excellent question. We'll get to that when we get to the Muratorian canon. <laughs> Next week. But to answer your question, the Bible books were already known to be the Bible books. Then there were other books that were considered helpful, but not scripture. And they even would say, you can read this, you just can't read it at church. And then there were books they would say, this is heresy. So they kind of had three classes. Were any of those um, in that list, were those all deceptive? Or was there any coming from a good place or a good intent that that's could have the, been useful? That's, that's a good question. Not, not these ones. So uh, you'll hear terms like um, the Deutero canonical books everything has to have a fancy name that means second canon or second set of books so there's books that we're going to encounter like the shepherd of hermas or the didache these were beloved uh, christian writings that the church often used but were known this is not the inspired word of god so don't build your faith around these things kind of like reading piper sproul or macarthur or Cole, Steve Cole, something along those lines. These ones were all outright forgeries, heresies, uh, teaching fanciful, crazy stuff. So these aren't the apocryphal books, which Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholics use. Uh, these are just completely separate category. Very good question. What else? Any other questions about just free range on the whole thing? Nece necessity of history? Judaizers, Gnosticism, modern-day Gnosticism. I know it was fire, hose, and fast. 
Uh, I'm trying to, I want to get us to the creeds and slow down and spend a lot of time looking at what the creeds teach us about the gospel. Uh, I would like to, but it's 745. Yeah, let me, let me close this in prayer. And we will pick up next time with the Apostles' Creed. So please keep your notes. If you don't want to keep your notes, leave them, and then I'll collect them and not give them to you next week. I'll give them to somebody else. Lord, we, uh, we've seen uh, so much this evening in a really short span of time, traversing 100 years in the beginning of the church, seeing that from the beginning there has been a desire to change your gospel into works. Jesus plus something else equals salvation. There has been an assault against your word and the clarity of the gospel by claiming to have secret knowledge over and against what you've written. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the free grace of the gospel that we can't add to it. Ours is merely to give you our sin and you wash it away. So, Lord, we... Uh, we recognize that the day and age that we live in, we and everyone we know is prone to wanting to add to the gospel. And all around us is the idea that the physical is bad, so indulge or hurt it, but liberate the inner self. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from false thinking, protect us from especially um, those who spend a lot of time on social media, and especially for the students among us, that you would give them the wisdom and the strength and the understanding to know your word and to stand by it and to know that nothing can give life other than your word. So Lord, please give us the humility to be armed with your gospel of grace and to love others by giving it to them. Thank you for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.